discourse, which I scheduled so long ago, called the Spring Jewish Holidays, before we got on our roll with uh, Judaism and Christianity, uh, um, is what we're going to be exploring for the next few weeks. So, um, I wanted to look at this Jewish calendar that we, that we looked at last week to give it, get us oriented. And then I'll share some more with you. So today is the new moon. Today is the new moon of Adar. Uh, It's actually the new moon of second Adar because this is a leap year as we described. And uh, that means that if you're looking at this pi here, um, where Adar, the month that's numbered 12, where the, the dividing line between 11 and 12, that black line, is where we are right now. And moving, uh, moving clockwise, you see that Purim is on the 14th? Mm-hmm. Two weeks from now, is that, do you see that? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the full moon, right? Because it's a lunar month, it's 29 days. And so the 14th or 15th of each month because it's halfway in between, is the full moon. And so the festival of Purim will happen in exactly two weeks, when the moon is full. <laughs> and, uh, and then, again, the next full moon after that will be Passover in Nisan. Uh, the uh, Purim always falls on the full moon of Adar, which is always exactly one month, right? One lunar cycle before the full moon, that is Passover. So that's how the holidays are linked. And it's kind of interesting because there really are some ways to compare Purim and Passover. except that the tone of Passover is so different than the tone of Purim. <coughs> uh, hmm? To say the least. So what are some of the comparisons that we can make between Purim and Passover? Well, let's think about the heroes. First of all, Purim, you want to remember, is a holiday, is the holiday of the year where all the rules are supposed to be broken, where everything is overturned, where uh, uh, um, we make fun of the powerful, uh, as opposed to Passover, where we celebrate our liberation from tyrants, 
It's almost like Purim helps us soften, soften them up first. The, the, the you know, uh, the, um, they're pretty, they, they, how should we say about our current, uh, current situation in this country? You can't, you almost can't do satire on it because it's so, they're already such caricatures. It's already such a caricature. So uh, Rabbi Arthur Waskow, who, uh, uh, this is his book that I love, called Seasons of Our Joy, May He Continue to Live and Be Well, um, wrote, um, if you're on his email list from the Shalom Center, he wrote his annual Purim message, and he wrote a dialogue where the king is king... king Trump Asuertas. Trump Asuertas. <laughs> instead of Ahasuerosh, who says... I have, my scepter is huge. <laughs> now, when you, um, when you read the story of Purim, which is a farce, Ahasuerus holds out his golden scepter to Esther and allows her to touch it. I mean, you have to understand that the story of Esther, even though it's a book in the Bible, is a farce. Right? It's not like it's not the book of Deuteronomy, and it's not the book of Psalms. It's the scroll of Esther. The, Do you know how old that tradition is? Let's talk about it. Um, n- not exactly. Uh, there's two get, there's, there'd be three, three ways to guess. So, Esther and Mordechai live in the kingdom of Persia, right? And Ahasuerosh is the Hebrew for Artaxerxes, who was like... Cyrus was the first uh, um, emperor of the Persian Empire, the king of the Persian Empire. And then there was like Xerxes and Artaxerxes. Uh, so the, the historical figure who's being referenced here might have lived in um, the, around the year maybe 400 or something like that. The, no, I should say in the 5th century BCE, sometime between 400 and 500 BCE. That's when this historical drama is situated, right? Does that mean it actually happened? No. Um, There is no external record of a um, Jew named Mordechai who became the prime minister of the Persian Empire. Oh, as long as you're all right. <laughs> I was getting ready to call the, call the ambulance there. <laughs> so, we don't have historical evidence uh, of someone named Haman or any of it, right? So, in fact, one of the ways we know it's a parody is that, and again, this will be old news to some of us, but I'm assuming that we don't, you know, you'll... It's always good to hear it again. Esther is the Hebrew form of Ishtar, and Mordechai is the Hebrew form of Marduk. Marduk and Ishtar are the chief god and goddess of the Persian pantheon. Right? So these most quintessential Jewish names are actually named after gods and goddesses in the Persian pantheon. Now, my guess is that's part of the joke. Mm-hmm. Oh. That the Jews are making fun 
of the, of the Persians and their gods. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, that's why I don't think it's an historical document. Also, uh, um, it might, but there, but one of the historical guesses is that there's an end of winter, springtime blowout feast in many parts of the world. We are most familiar with Carnival, so which means saying goodbye to meat. That's what Carnival means. You say goodbye to carne, because the next day, that's Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras, the next day is, is Lenten Wednesday, when you begin the 40 days of Lent that go lead up to Easter. So if Matthew was here, we'd, we'd keep having this conversation. However, there seems to be parallels between a Purim festival, which is a blowout, get drunk, party, wear costumes, festival, and the Mardi Gras, because each of them then begin a period in the Jewish calendar. It's it's the natural period of one lunar cycle, right? Because we have a lunar calendar. In the Christian calendar, it's it's 40 days to the... that kind of begins a period of shall we call it vigil or preparation or anticipation of the truly central um, uh, festival, Passover or, or Easter. So it, it's certainly we know in the Middle Ages, uh, the Jews who celebrated Purim uh, took on some of the... Um, uh, Customs of uh, Mardi Gras, the costumes, the masquerades, the play, the funny plays, and the touring musicians and parades, like all of it. It's like, hey, that looks good. <laughs> we have a holiday like that. Right? So it goes back and forth, but it's very clear because there's a whole tractate about there's just a huge amount of stuff about Purim in the Talmud. So in the much earlier centuries, Purim was already this kind of holiday. In fact, in the Talmud, there are some of the funniest passages in the Talmud. Everything okay, Jess? I I provide data services to the town, and one of the police cars isn't working. Oh, okay. Um, What did I just say? Oh, yeah, yeah. There are actually pages in the Talmud, which I can share with you, uh, about Purim, where the rabbis are clearly telling jokes. You have to be so dense, which we are, (laughs) to try to study them and then realize, oh, they're telling a joke. For example, um, a joke that Rabbi so-and-so went to... I don't have the text in front of me. Rabbi so-and-so went to some, was invited to Rabbi so-and-so's Purim feast because there's always a feast on Purim. And the rabbi who had invited him got really drunk and, um, and hit the uh, guest with like something and killed him. 
But then the rabbi, the rabbi, the host rabbi, prayed over this rabbi and brought him back to life. And next year he invited him to his Purim party again. And the rabbi, the other, the, the rabbi says, "No, thank you. Uh, miracles don't happen necessarily every time." Now that's a joke story, right? And there's others like it, which are really fun, fun to read in the Talmud. So uh, the Talmud says, what do they mean? That you should get so drunk on Purim, and the Hebrew word is sort of so, uh, well, anyway, uh, it's drunk, you know, so uh, wasted, so uh, that you can't tell the difference between the phrase, blessed is Mordechai and cursed is Haman. So it's this one day of a year when you forget about the usual boundaries of right and wrong, good and evil, and within that contained space, you blow off steam. That seems to be Purim's main uh, um, quality, its main character. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's, with Purim Passover, there's this sense of unboundedness and freedom. Yes, that's right. That's right. They both share a different kind of sense of freedom. Um, when you look at Esther and Moses, think about how... Um, a friend of mine pointed this out. I found some notes I made a long time ago. Uh, neither is raised by their own parents, because Mordechai is, is Esther's cousin. Um, we don't know what happened to her parents. But Moses and... They're both, they both live in the palace. Esther and Moses both live in the palace. They both have to hide their Jewish identity. They're both told that their mission is to save the Jews. And they both need to be convinced. And each of them has to go before the non-Jewish ruler and tell them to save the Jew, that, not to destroy the Jews. Uh, I was looking at those parallels. I think that's quite, quite interesting. Except that, uh, yes, and one of the major differences here, among the many, is that um, Esther is a sexual and courtroom farce, uh, royal court farce, with mistaken identities and um, uh, turnabout is fair play, and the king is a dunce, and um, it's very interesting that way. Whereas the Passover story is essentially dead serious, right? Um, it's, a, it's an epic. This is a farce, and the Passover story is an epic. And yet they're both telling a similar kind of tale. I, I find that really fascinating. There's, there's something else that comes to my mind. I, I've always been very struck by um, when, I, when I, you know, at, at 52 discovered there was something called Tishaba of, and, and, and realized that my tradition was telling me there was a time when I had to mourn. It was a time to feel bad about things. And, and that was so extraordinary to me that not only was I given permission, but I, was, it was, I had to do that. So as a, and, and, and I understood it to be like a clearing out before Rosh Hashanah. 
so that I could be ready to take on first the celebration of the new year, but then, then Yom Kippur. Um, and what I'm hearing here, the same kind of thing going on, this blowout where I can just drop it all and through laughter or through drunkenness or through whatever so that I can be ready. It's, it's like a purification. I was just thinking that. Mm-hmm. A purge, a release. Mm-hmm. When was Ecclesiastes written? Oh, and I didn't finish answering the question of when the Megillah might have been written. Well, um, because I'm hearing, you know, there is a time for every place under heaven, so to speak, which is Ecclesiastes. Right? Yes, that's right. So, and that's what I'm hearing Carol talk about. So I'm wondering if that was an influence. Well, where they both might be, in, where both they both might have influence, is that they both might be products of what's called the Hellenistic period. So a little, that means the period after. So if you just do a little schematic in your mind and think of sixth century BCE, the Babylonian Empire conquers the land of Israel and deports the Jews to Babylonia. That's when the exile to Babylonia begins. Sixth century BCE. Fifth century BCE, the Babylonians are overpowered by the Persian Empire. The Persians, King Cyrus, is always considered in ancient Jewish texts positively because he gave the Jews of Babylonia permission to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple there. Right? So the Babylonians, the Persians. And a lot, and so the Persians were in power for, oh, a, a, I don't know, 150 years or something, and were the they were the they were the they were the superpower. They are then conquered, and their 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 um, their empire extended. If you remember those maps from India, all the way to North Africa and Ethiopia, right? And that's why. It's amazing, isn't it? And that's why when you start reading the book of Esther, it says, and his kingdom was 127 provinces extending from Hodu Adkush, from India to Ethiopia. If you also consider that, and this is a little aside, um, this, is, this is when Buddhism is starting and Hinduism are already, uh, you know, um, flourishing. <laughs> And uh, the fact that uh, there was an organized empire that had discourse between India and all the way into North and East Africa indicates that I'm sure there was a discourse of ideas percolating all over the place. It's pretty fascinating when you think about it. Uh, but that's a, whole, that's a related subject. So what happens in the year in the 4th century BCE, 330, I think it is, Alexander the Great from Macedonia sweeps away the Persian Empire and institutes the period known as the Hellenistic period, Helen, Helena being Greece, you know, and, um, uh, and Greek becomes the, the, the currency, the language and currency of the ancient world. 
in effect in the same, much the same territories that had been the Persian Empire. The little province of Judea is right in the, always in the middle of that. Babylonia, Persia, Greece, right? So uh, it's almost impossible to tease out how we got to be who, who we are as a, this little provincial people in this being buffeted by empires constantly. But isn't it interesting that we were, that we didn't get swallowed it's up to- by anything. To me, that's the mystery of Jewish existence. Because, because Purim, there's nothing inherently... We can't... Purim's not in the Bible, right? There's no mention of Purim or Esther in the, in the, in the five books of Moses. Even though the story of Esther made it into the canon, Right? It's in the Hebrew Bible. But in the five books of Moses, which is the sort of the, the oldest stratum, there's no mention of Purim. The scroll of Esther actually says, and because of this, a festival called Purim shall be celebrated every year by the decree of Mordechai, signed. So scholars have no idea whether there was some kind of celebration and then this story got written to tell the story, you know, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or something, I don't know, um, or whether this story helped institute the holiday. I was reading about it today. Nobody, wow. nobody knows exactly. And are, are there no sort of pagan antecedents? Well, there are. That's the thing. Yeah. So, so it appears that somehow along the way, Purim, this late winter, early spring festival... <laughs> got Jewified, you know, huh. it, it became a Jewish holiday um, and got a name and a whole backstory and our way of doing it. That's true of other holidays too. Hanukkah probably, was, as a solstice holiday, pre-existed the Jewish version that celebrates Jewish, a Jewish <laughs> victory. Uh, yes, Ellen. I don't remember exactly. Sometime around now, in Iran, there is a spring festival. That's right. In Iran, which is the historical Persia, there's a festival that compares special, to this. That's special right. Special food and families get together and, and... I need to look that up. Clean out the old, bring in the new. Yep, yep. Now, it's also safe to say from an historical standpoint that the Jewish festivals of Passover in the spring and um, uh, Sukkot in the fall are Judaized versions of pre-existing spring and, har- spring and fall harvest festivals. Right? We have enough evidence of that from uh, both inside the Torah, where Passover has a number of names, uh, like one of its names is Chag Hamatzot, the festival of unleavened bread. Another is uh, 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 Chag Pesach, the feast of Passover. Zman Cherutenu, the season of our liberation, and Chag Ha'aviv, the festival of spring. Those are all legitimate names for Passover in the Jewish tradition. And so um, they're they're um, a conflation of of, 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 uh, of um, agricultural holiday 
with historical and uh, religious worship. And the way I've described this to you over the years is, I think part of the genius of Judaism, in the way it's developed, is that it attached our sacred stories and wove them into our seasonal celebrations. So that something, so that they're not, Passover is not either an agricultural celebration or a religious one or a spiritual one or a historical one. It's all of them. It's all of them. And uh, so Purim, in its placement, historical is not the right word, but um, what's the word I'm looking for? For something that, uh, that retells and affirms our sacred stories, right? Our, um, uh, the stories that form our, our collective memory of who we are. Our legacy, yeah. And of course, archetypal stories. Our myths is really the best word I'd like to say. That tells our sacred myths in the context of the seasons of the year. And as Carol was saying, each, each holiday has its own tone, which is really interesting when you consider the whole cycle of the year's holidays. Um, there are days of just total joy on Sukkot, days of celebration on Passover, days of raucous uh, expression on Purim, and then days of, of dread also, and days of self, Yom Kippur is a day of self-affliction. Uh, and so as you make your way around the calendar, it's almost like you'll find every... Um, shade of um, human emotional experience. experience. Yes, you, you really travel it. And of course, each one of us might have favored holidays because each one of us might have favored kinds of temperaments that we like this better or we're drawn to that more. Or, and uh, I kind of like that. that that's, the, that's the way it's organized. So, the Hellenistic period sweeps away the Persian Empire and it's very possible to me, probable based on my reading, that the story of Esther comes from this period, from a, 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 a composition from when Greek had already come into, uh, I can't prove this, but what I learned is that the way a, the way a, a book or a story or a scroll was given its uh, bona fides, it's, uh, was by retrojecting it into the past. So Ecclesiastes, for example, probably written during this Greek period, because of, uh, but ascribes it to King Solomon. And this book may have been written as a com may have been written as a as a um, as a uh, coded. C-O-D-E-D, -E kind of um, satire about the politics of the Greek rulers, but was retrojected into the past. That is my best guess as an amateur historian, um, because we know that um, the books, we don't know this, but this is very convincing argument, that, that um, 
what in 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 those times what gave books their authenticity was their antiquity. That's why we don't know the names of any of the actual authors of these books, because if they were written by a contemporary and we knew who wrote it, it, was, it didn't have the kind of uh, weight and authenticity that if somebody wrote under a pseudonym and placed it back in time, that gave it more authenticity. And that seems to be what happened with a lot of these books, that they were actually composed later, but rejected to an earlier time with an earlier author. All of those are interesting, um, but the truth is, it's not clear how exactly Purim became Purim. But what we do know is that at some point, this is the story of Purim, and it's a long time ago, because the rabbis of the Talmud love it and talk about it all the time, and it made it into the Hebrew Bible, right? So it, it, the scroll of Esther is in there. So, um, okay. It's also, yeah. from what I understand, it's also true that at least when some Christians study the book of Esther as part of the Bible, it's seriously studied. It's not a farce. It's not the way... Right, right. Um, but it also seems to me that because it became canonized, the book gets given a kind of gravitas that means that later commentators miss that it's supposed to be yes, funny. That's what I mean. Oh yeah. Well not just Christian commentators. My, I was reading about Maimonides in the Middle Ages, who uh, uh, was a very um, serious. serious guy. <laughs> very serious guy. No real sense of humor. Would we call him a scholar? A, a, a scholar, a very serious dude who was an Aristotelian and believed that the way to go is the middle path, huh? right? Not to go to extremes. Huh. His teachings are very clear. Not to go to extremes, that you need to find a way to remain on the, the middle path. And so his comment about the Talmudic comment that you should get so plastered that you can't tell the difference between Mordechai and Haman is he says, you should drink enough so that you fall asleep. <laughs> he must have been a lot of fun. At yeah, the party. yeah, real party. <laughs> my my money is not a party animal. He's extreme anyway. He's ex he's he's really like uh, yeah. So that's his own form of extremism. I know, I know, but he didn't he 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 didn't get he didn't get what the Talmud seems to be saying about Purim. On the other hand, Jewish mystical interpretation go. I've benefited so much from it because um, in because the Jewish spiritual tradition examines like the nature of this blowout and what it means to exceed the boundaries of regular everyday right and wrong mm -hmm. um, the roles we usually play that that's also a kind of spiritual liberation. When you can rise up above the drama of good and evil and all that and look at it all, you might return with a step that's a little lighter, right? Not, not weighed down uh, by the heaviness of all of our 
binary choices. Mm. And so it's subversive, right? Because on the one hand, we know Judaism is all about discerning right from wrong, eating from the tree of knowledge of good and bad. And yet, um, (coughs) if that's all you do, and you don't also find a way, as the tradition says, to eat from the mystical tradition, to eat from the tree of life, Mm -hmm. then your whole life is divided into categories. Mm -hmm. And the place of Purim is the place where categories for a little while cease to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the mystical tradition says, this is really important. This is a kind of spiritual openness and expansiveness not just a uh, down and dirty kind of uh, uh, blowout. And it's both. It's both. You can take it in either direction. Um, is, the, is the costume part, is there any aspect of like walking in someone else's shoes to that? Well, the costume part, originally, what is, um, uh, the masquerade seems to come about in the Middle Ages. Um, but it immediately gets turned into this fantastic spiritual teaching. Because, you know, let's start talking about the masks we wear. Right? And what it means to take off your mask. Or how you're liberated at some point if you're wearing a mask and you don't have to be yourself. Right? If you play a role how if you're an actor and you play a role, how that liberates you to discover other aspects of the human emotional spectrum that the mask you usually wear somehow defined you as someone who couldn't. So this idea of masks and not masks is then put into the story of Purim in this way, which is really amazing. First of all, Esther's name. Esther, which is, seems to etymologically come from Ishtar, the goddess, also means something in Hebrew. It means, I will hide. I will hide? Hide. Hide. Mm-hmm. Esther. Astir. I will hide. And yet, Megillah, which means scroll, which means to unroll, Legalot also means to reveal. So, because we're this lovely word-based tradition, if you say Megillat Esther, it means I, to reveal and what, I, what, I'm what I'm hiding. Oh. It, it's really cool. So many places to go with this. I know, it's really cool. And it's just like I mean, so... You know, I'm, I'm imagining... You know, I, I kind of adopt this crazy way of thinking. So, in my imagination, people who are bipolar or manic depressive yeah. are living this out because maybe because as a, a as a whole population we don't live it out. Oh, so, so, so if we are a collective, if we are a collective consciousness, yeah, and we are too, um, uh, what's the psychological world? Suppre- suppressed, suppressed, repressed. 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 Yeah. If we're too repressed. The unconscious, the desire to express, will somehow come, come out. Exactly. And if we think of ourselves, if we think of the society as a social being, then some people will be the um, agents exactly. of that of bringing, that of bringing the repressed 
out. Exactly, into manifestation in the same way that probably Timothy Leary and all those people were also pushing the boundaries of, mm -hmm. of pushing the boundaries and to seeing. And somehow it has to do with creativity and evolution. Mm -hmm. And that would be, again, a really beautiful for me th theory of why Purim is part of the Jewish calendar. Mm -hmm. The, what was it, Freud's book? About the repressed? Uh, who, what's the famous book? Uh, I can't think of the title. But anyway. Hmm? No, but there's a book that literally has the word repressed in it. I don't know if it's Freud. Um, and I'll look it up. But uh, uh, the idea that if you don't have opportunities for this, then it's going, if it doesn't come out in a socially sanctioned and appropriate manner, then it's going to uh, uh, somehow rupture somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we have football now, which is considered a violent game by yes. some people. And yet, at the same time, we still have a lot of violence. So Something's not working. Something isn't going right. For uh, football, in that theory, football would be our vent for that impulse. And yet... <clears throat> or maybe there's too much political correctness going on. So that's the eruption into I don't know, I'm just trying Eruption to is a good word. A, yeah. I'm trying to put this into some sort of a modern context to understanding our own culture now, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not quite getting there. Where there's too much denial of part of the human spectrum, it comes back to bite you somehow. And isn't it incumbent on me to take all that and see where it lives in me? Right. You want to say more? <laughs> well, that's true. We, we're now constructing a social theory, and that's always fun. Um, uh, but uh, we want to bring it back to ourselves to see what, if, you know, there's plenty of theories of mind-body stuff sure. where the repressed unconscious, if it's not given its day in the, in the light, then manifests itself through illness, through uh, uh, psychological imbalance, through... Yeah, all of that is a, is a big part of the meta-theory. Did you want to say something, Martha? Well, I just wanted to say that venting and catharsis are not necessarily synonymous. So that's, I mean, that's just... Ah, uh, so let's use the word catharsis. Uh-huh. Because I think catharsis has a sort of programmatic aspect to it where by being sanctioned and by having sort of oversight, the transgression is overseen in order to have something gone through, as opposed to football, which could just be ramping up the event, you know, the Yes, the that's aggression. an important mm -hmm. distinction between yeah. what in one vocabulary I learned was called rehearsing, just sort of like doing it, but without um, it having its desired effect Right. of, of uh, cathartic yes. release. Right. And after a catharsis, whether it's a, a real blowout between two people who love each other, only then sometimes can the reconciliation happen. Right? That seems to be the nature of things. And we know it from little kids who have to have their tantrum sometime. And then after their tantrum, it's over. And they're ready to... They just had to get it out. Oh. And, and we may all... <laughs> See how it relates to me. <laughs> hmm. 
I think we're having a collective weird tantrum and, and trying, I'm trying to be grown up. Oh boy, oh God. Sorry. We may all be in the Matrix, who knows? What? We may all be in the Matrix, who knows? Well, I'm convinced, oh, you mean the movie The Matrix? The movie, the, uh, yes. the concept. Uh, uh, I, I want to actually say something uh, real about that, which is that... <laughs> which is that we are in a matrix. The matrix is that even while we are trying to track our own individual state and stay centered and let go what we need to let go, and um, we are totally permeable to the, the collective energy that's flowing all around us. It's like, I'm, I, I'm not sure right now whether I'm waking up tired in the morning, and it's not terrible or anything, it's just like, it's just like, Oh, I just slept fine. Why do I feel... Is it something about my diet or my... or getting a little older or... Or is it me just absorbing too much craziness and negativity right now? How, it's very hard, hard. I don't even know how to tease those out. So we are part of a matrix, I think. Um, <sighs> these are Purim questions. They are. And they're there. So what I'd like to do today, and then next week, we'll, we have two weeks to talk about Purim, so we have plenty of time. So we'll look at the text next week because um, I want to, as we've done in other years, but I, it's really important to start exploring um, what the Jewish tradition names the embodiment of evil, which is Amalek. Uh, so I'm gonna, I want to get us some uh, chumashim. Let's see, three, six. Oh, I got more than enough? Okay. On the Shabbat before Purim, the rabbis instituted a special reading, and it's called Shabbat Zachor. Shabbat, that means remember. So if you look, on, I'm taking you on a little journey here. If you look on page 1335, 
This is the reading for, that we're supposed to do right before Purim. Verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey. Oh, page 1335. Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. How undeterred by fear of God, he surprised you on the march when you were famished and weary and cut down all the stragglers in your rear. Therefore, when the eternal your God grants you safety from all your enemies around you in the land that the eternal your God is giving you as a hereditary portion, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. <laughs> blot out the memory, do not forget. Right. They seem to contradict Yeah, they do, yes. don't they? Yes. Blot out the memory, do not forget. So, do not forget to blot it out. Do not forget to, but what happens? Okay. So, uh, some of us know the relationship between Amalek and Haman. Does anybody want to talk about it? Uh, Ellen, do you want to? You don't have to. I don't remember the... It said that because they didn't kill all the Amalekites, that Haman is descended from them. And that's why he was just... It was bred in him to be against the Jews. I don't remember the details. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So... Amalek is identified. There are many tribes identified in the Torah and enemies that the children of Israel battle against um, uh, as they make their way to the promised land. But only one of these tribes becomes an archetype in Jewish tradition of evil. Uh, Not just an enemy, but an archetype of unrepentant evil, and that is Amalek, uh, because Amalek came up from behind and took out the weak and the enfeebled. That's what it says here. That Now, we've talked enough about the Torah's emphasis on God is the protector of the powerless, right? That is, that is, if there's a theme of the Torah, that's the theme of the Torah. And we, children of Israel in Egypt, are the signal example of that. And the, the commandments to protect the widow and the orphan and the stranger are repeated endlessly throughout the Torah. And the fact that to do so if you don't do so, God says, then I'm going to do it. So you'd better, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it, and you're going to pay for it, because you didn't. And on and on and on. It, it's, the more I study Torah, the more I understand that this is the theme of the Torah, that the creator of the universe is the creator of all human beings who are all made in God's image. So Amalek gets the category in Jewish tradition, from early, early on, of the, the those those who will pick off the power, the least powerful, and the the weakest, and the uh, those who can't protect themselves, they are the antithesis of what God wants us humans to do. So you can put that into any kind of language 
that suits us, right? If, but the bottom line is if God made every human being in the divine image, then every human being deserves to be treated as someone of incalculable value. Pharaoh, by reducing the Israelites to objects, uh, means of production for him, with no consideration for their, in, for their, in, for their, uh, for their inestimable value as living human beings, is another embodiment of this antithesis of what we understand the will of the Creator to be. So Amalek gets that category because they take on the enfeebled and take them out. So when in the Jewish tradition you say Amalek, well, as some of you know, um, Jews who live in this vocabulary call Hitler Amalek, right? Uh, and because it says, uh, you shall erase, blot out. Timche means to uh, uh, blot out or erase. The memory of Amalek from under the heavens, instead of saying, which is what we say about most people who've died, um, uh, his memory is a blessing. In other words, it's a blessing to remember this person. You say, Hitler yimachshmo. May his name be blotted out. So that's the Jewish way of talking about this kind of unrepentant evil, where human lives are, have no value other than you, their utility or their, uh, the obstacle they place for the person in power who wants to either use them or eliminate them or abuse them. Um, they, do, they blot out, it's as though they are blotting out the divine image that was imprinted within every human being and then their memory should also be blotted out. That's the Jewish way of talking about it. So it says that Haman, so where do we keep hearing about Amalek? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting, but the next time we hear about it is in the book of Samuel, which is one of the books that comes after the five books ends. The children of Israel are now living as the 12 tribes in Israel. Samuel is their prophet and leader, and they demand a king. And so King Saul is chosen. And King Saul is successful for a while, but he is then given the assignment of going to wipe out Amalek. They're still around. Wipe them out. Now, again, from our, in our, if we're taking the story literally, we'll sympathize with Saul. But maybe we should sympathize with him anyway. Because what a task. He goes, he slaughters the soldiers, he slaughters the animals and destroys the stuff that's of no value, but he keeps everything that else is of value and brings it back. The, you know, the booty, the, uh, the, the women. He keeps the women and the young children. The young children, yeah. He doesn't destroy them. He thinks he's done the right thing. And Samuel says, can't you follow orders? God told you to wipe out Amalek. 
So it's pretty clear that Amalek symbolizes something in this story. And Saul is, is like, but what are you talking about? And Samuel says, you can't be king. Your, your reign is over. And Saul starts to fade, and King David emerges in the next uh, chapters. Um, it's a very sad story. So Agag is the king of the Amalekites in that story. The next time we hear about Amalek is in the book of Esther, which is really interesting. When Haman is introduced, boo, boo. When Haman's introduced, it says, after these events, King Achashverosh promoted Haman, son of Hamdata, the Agagite, and made him his prime minister. That means, Agagite in English means the descendant of Agag, the king of Amalek. Like Darth Vader. Like Darth Vader. So who's been taken over by the dark side. So whoever, so a Jew who, as I've said in past years, who's conversant in this vocabulary, understands that Agag, that Haman has been marked in this story. So how is Mordechai marked? Well, it says about Mordechai when he's introduced, the previous chapter, it says there was a Jewish man in Shushan, a man from Judah, whose name was Mordechai, son of Yair, son of Shim'i, son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, if you study Saul's lineage, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. So, in the eternal battle between good and evil, in the story of Purim, Mordechai, a descendant of Saul's tribe, and Haman, a descendant of Amalek's tribe, are meeting again. They're meeting again. And uh, so then the question is, how, so, but we don't want to objective, the rabbis don't want to just objectify Amalek. They're more sophisticated than that. They want to ask, but why does radical evil arise in the world? And so, doing the way the rabbis do, they look in the Torah to see what they could find out about Amalek's origins. And it's really interesting. Uh, turn back to uh, page 230. And look at verse 10. Here we are getting the whole lineage of Esau, Jacob's brother. In the chapter that leads right next will lead into the story of Jacob and Joseph and his brothers. And it says, it says these are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, son of Ada, Esau's wife. Reuel, son of Basmat, Esau's wife. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah, 
That's my daughter's name, which I didn't realize from this story. I just liked the name. Oh, well. Timna was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. Um, And the question is, so the rabbis ask, well, why did Timna, Eliphaz's concubine, bear Amalek? What's going on? And you also get that Amalek is, um, let's see, Eliphaz is um, Joseph and his brother's first cousin. So Amalek is like their second cousin, right? That's who Amalek is. Get that first of all. Amalek, this this is in the family. So they say, so what happened? Well, so allow me. Um, uh, there is a, in the ne- over on the next page, there's another verse um, uh, in verse uh, 20. If you look over in 20, uh, it says, And these are the descendants of Seir, the Horite, who dwelt in the land. Seir is a close, another close cousin. Lotan, Shobal, Zivion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the Horite clans, the descendants of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Edom. The, son, uh, 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 the sons of Lotan were Hori and Chemam. Lotan's sister was Timna. Okay, so first of all, geographically, when you go down to the very southern tip of Israel, near Eilat, there's a place called Timna which is these amazing ancient copper mines and sandstone. It's national park there. And next to it is a kibbutz called Kibbutz Lotan because Lotan and Timna were brother and sister, apparently. But the rabbis tell this great story. Um, in the Talmud, they're saying there was an evil king, Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, who only examined biblical narratives to prove them worthless. <laughs> Thus he would jeer. We, we so Moses had nothing to write, but Lotan's sister was Timna? In other words, and Timna was concubine to Eliphaz? That's his way of saying, what's this doing in the Torah? Who cares who Lotan's sister was? What is your stupid Torah here? <laughs> right, and so Lotan, um, Timna, uh, uh, um, Timna Achot Lotan, and Timna was the sister of Lotan, in Jewish talk becomes when you say something that's like, okay. who cares? <laughs> really irrelevant. Right? That's what, in, for people for whom the Bible is their source of idioms and, pro, and how they talk, when you say, yeah, someone says something and you say, and yeah, Timna was the sister of Lotan. So? Do you follow what I'm saying? Okay, that's what I have to get across. So, the rabbis want to prove that nothing in the Torah is extraneous. So they, they, so they, they, they come back uh, at, uh, uh, on this story and they say, so apropos, what is the purpose of writing and Lotan's sister was Timna? Well, Timna was a royal princess. As it is written in another line in here, 
Aluf lotan, aluf timna. Aluf means either clan, but aluf can also mean, in modern Hebrew, a general or a leader or a... So she and lotan were royalty. Um, and Timna wanted to join the Jewish people. She wanted to become a Jew. Now they're retrojecting. So she went to Jacob and he did not accept her. He cast her off. So she went and became a concubine to Eliphaz, the son of Esau, saying, I had rather be a servant to this people than a mistress of another nation. From her, Amalek was descended, who afflicted Israel. Why so? Because they should not have repulsed her. Mm-hmm. Here's what rejection does to you. Whoa. So the rabbi's story about the origin of Amalek now, this isn't the truth. This is like deep psychological stuff yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This isn't like, this is really how... The rabbis are telling a story on purpose uh, mm-hmm. that where does the worst evil come from? Mm-hmm. It comes from what we reject totally. Mm-hmm. If we reject someone totally, if we treat... That's going to start the process. R- right? Now, is this universally true? No, I don't think so. I think there are sociopaths in the world, and I think there are, uh, you know, there's just all kinds of unhinged possibilities out there. But we also know where does the deepest resentment, the unforgiving hatred, where does it start? Where does it start? So they say it started here, because Timnah came to her uncle Jacob. Her, her, not her uncle, um, but she's her... She's related to, to Jacob and says, I want to be part of your people. Jacob blew her off. And she said, well then, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. So the origin of evil in the rabbinic imagination here is when we reject someone else's desire to be near us or part of us or included, we should say included. (sighs) Um, I had to share that with you. I think it's so deep. Um, Remember when we made that list of things we loved about Judaism? Yeah. This is what I love about Judaism. (laughs) And and it goes on forever. There's no way of stopping the discovery of these things. They just keep coming. They just keep coming. So, Rebbe, yes? Is there any way this is, I don't know if you know, if this is related to the Sanskrit word amalak, from which we get amak, which is everything going out of order? Really? Yeah. (laughs) It is now. (laughs) And that would, thank you, a muck out of order. That would explain, that story then explains everything right up to uh, why they attacked the weak and the helpless and had no reverence for God. Uh, You know, in that path. And then... um, Levi Yitzchak, the the Hasidic rabbi from the 19th century, said, um, 
Not only are Jews commanded to wipe out Amalek, who is the descendant of Esau, but each Jew has to wipe out that negative part that is called Amalek, hidden in his or her heart. Um, I, I don't need to say any more than that. that was, that's, that's, that's his teaching about it. Okay, so... Um, So the battle of good and evil originates there and continues into the story, into the story of Esther and Mordechai and uh, Haman, um, those lineages still needing to do battle. But this is where we get into the mystical teaching about why do they say, and you should get so what's the, so like um, high, let's use that word. You should get so high on Purim uh, that you can't tell the difference between the terms blessed is Mordechai, Baruch Mordechai, and cursed is Haman, Arur Haman. And then they do a gematria, which you have to do. They add up the numerical value of Baruch Mordechai and Arur Haman, they add up to the same numerical value in Hebrew. It's so cool. Um, I think it's 500 and something. I can't remember. I, I can do the math later. Um, so they're saying that on some level, Baruch Mordechai, blessed is Mordechai, Arur Haman, cursed is Haman, add up to the same number. Or they cancel each other out. Or they cancel each other out. There's so many ways to think about this. So, they talk about, they keep playing with words in the Talmud. And they talk about that, you know that um, Haman suggests to Ahasuerus that he erect a gallows 50 cubits high upon which to hang Mordechai, right? And, but the word for the gallows is etz. What's etz? A tree. In other words, lumber, a timber. But the word is etz, 50 cubits high. And uh, then the rabbis say, hey, do you know that Haman's name appears in the, to- in the books, in the Genesis, and they say, what are you talking about? It's part of their kind of humorous but also serious take on it. And they say uh, uh, that it's when God says, you'll forgive me, I have to find the verse because I didn't bring the citation. Nope, it's, hold on one second. It's when God is talking about the tree. Um, right. Hamin ha'etz hazeh tochal. Hamin, and will they also eat from this tree? But it's got the same letters as Haman. So they say that's where Haman's name appears. So they're having a good time. But what they're, but what they're getting at is that the 50th rung in Jewish tradition, 
Um, there are called 49 gates of, um, well, let's read, let's read this together. Let's read this together. This is the Sfarim. He's another Hasidic teacher. So, this is this, this is the Spot Emmet, uh, writing in about the year 1900. The Talmud says we should be so intoxicated on Purim that we cannot distinguish between blessed be Mordechai and cursed be Haman. I heard my grandfather and teacher say that one has to rise to a place higher than the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I don't recall it all in its proper order, but the point was that the tree Haman prepared for Mordechai's hanging was 50 cubits high, one higher than the 49 measures of defilement and purification. Okay, what does that mean? Um, in the Jewish tradition, they like to use the word 49 gates because it's seven times seven. There are 49 gates of repentance. There are 49 gates of defilement. There are 49 gates of of, of what the word they used? Purification. Mm -hmm. um, and the point here, again, we're getting better and better at knowing the Jewish vocabulary. 49, 7 times 7, that's, that's everything. The 50th? That's beyond. It's beyond. Beyond. Um, but the point uh, was that the tree Haman prepared for Mordechai's hanging was 50 cubits high, one higher than the 49 measures of the defilement and purification. The power of Amalek is found on all those levels where one can neither be either pure or impure. But the 50th gate is that of holiness. There are no two ways there, but only that of goodness, for that is the root of oneness. That is why it says, okay, uh, in the middle of in the battle against Amalek, um, when Moses lifted his hand, Israel was victorious, for he raised it toward the fiftieth gate, the tree of life, which is the Torah. Um, when the power of Moses, prince of Torah, is awakened, Amalek is defeated. That is why we are told that on Purim there was another receiving of Torah, the revelation of the tree of life. That is a place that does not know about blessed be Mordechai and cursed be Haman, since evil does not reach there at all to the root of unity. Who is speaking here? This is um, um, the, the Hasidic rabbi called the Sfat Emet, oh. quoting yeah, his grandfather. A, huh? Oh, where he says, I, I heard my grandfather. Who was, who was the I? His grandfather was the first Gera Rebbe. So the first Gera Rebbe was his grandfather, uh, and this guy's name, which was Mordechai Lehner uh, of Ger. Um, he, oh, oh, Lehner. So what was this guy's name? Yehuda Lehner. Le Le no, 
somebody else. I say, never mind. I have it on. It's not my book. He goes by his nickname, the Svat Emet. Oh, I and he started the Gerer. He was the his grandfather started the Gerer Hasidim, who were a Hasidic sect from Ger in Poland. And when his grandfather died, he inherited the uh, Rebbe. Um, and so he's speaking in Warsaw, uh, probably in the year 1900 or so, when he writes these words. Um, okay, so now, where is the place? Huh? Yehuda Aryeleb Altar. Yehuda Aryeleb Altar of Ger. That was his name. Altar just means the elder, of course. Um, like Altakakar. Um Okay, so it, to understand this, this isn't about the eradication of evil outside of us. This is about when the moments when we reach a level of consciousness where we are not dividing the world into good and evil. Uh, right? This is the 50th rung is the place of unity beyond duality. And the, that's, that's the place you might get to when you're intoxicated. Now, when you, if you're drunk, you just love everybody, unless you're an angry drunk, right? <laughs> but um, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about spiritually intoxicated. Mm. Um, and... It's like that Rumi poem that, uh, that we like to quote. Or was it Hafiz? I think it's Rumi. There's, um, we, who put it on their signature? You did. Yeah, I did. A place of the, the uh, field. Beyond, beyond, uh, beyond field. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is, there is a field. I will meet you there. Yeah. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there's a field. I will meet you there. The place where our decisions about who's blessed and who's cursed, who's right and who's wrong, what's good and what's bad, where we just let it go and instead we meet someone in all their humanity. And it brings me all the way back to the beginning of the story when Timnah comes to Jacob. If Jacob could have met her there... If Jacob could have met her there when she approached him out beyond the ideas of wrong and right, he would have embraced her and the, the, the divisiveness wouldn't have taken place. Um, maybe Amalek would not have sprung from her if she had not been treated in that way. So um, um, the rabbi. So that's why that's why the Sfaremet says that uh, that Purim. The goal of Purim is to elevate ourselves to get high enough where uh, where the boundaries dissolve. Yeah. Just going back to the class with Matthew. Yeah. I wonder 
what he would say about Jesus being in that place of elevation. I'm sure he would say, yes, when we're made one by the Spirit, yeah. We're all part of the one body. Mm -hmm. That's mystical consciousness, everybody. That's, that's what its label is. Mystical consciousness is that, that, that moment of when, when we do not perceive ourselves as separate but as part of everything, so we can't be separate. Um, and so anything that we see in you, that I see in you at that moment, I have to ascribe as part of me and uh, curse it and bless it. You know, so this is a very, that's considered to be, as we say, a very high state. And it's not a state that you occupy very often, I occupy very often, because I need my judging mind. The world, you know, things are a mess. I have to figure out how to navigate this world. But one day a year, to remember that beyond all of this drama, there's glorious oneness, the cosmos is unfolding as it should, it's like, the, it's like stepping back to get the biggest picture. I'm going to die, and then I'll be part of something else. So death isn't bad anymore, or to be shunned, from that perspective. And I can come back from that perspective, back into the world. How should I say? Not tethered, not enslaved to the categories, so that I'm not like bound in that way by the drama of our lives that we're experiencing right now. I'm going to play. I'm in it. I'm in the game. But one day a year, to lift ourselves up over it? Now this gets very interesting, because the rabbis then say in the Talmud that there's another day of the year for this as well. And Purim, rel the relative of Purim is Yom HaKippurim. Yom Kippur, whose full name is Yom HaKippurim. And they hear the sound of the two. And um, so Kippurim, Kippur means atonement, right? Expiation. Yom Kippur means the day of atonement. Purim, as you may know from the book, from the story of Esther, means lottery. It's a lottery. Haman throws dice to decide which day he's going to kill all the Jews. And it's, those are the, that's called a poor. And so the holiday becomes known as the holiday of Purim, which gets me thinking about all kinds of things. Like, is Purim also telling us that the rest of the year, where we say God has a plan you know, that we're all part of, we're part of a covenant with the Creator. And then one day a year we say, that may be, but I think life is like a crapshoot. And we don't know why, what happens to who. This is reflected in the fact that along with the Song of Songs, the story of Esther, the scroll of Esther, is the only story in the Torah, the only book in the Torah, that never mentions the name of God. Not once. There's the people, when it says they, they prayed and fasted, it doesn't say who they prayed and fasted to. 
or that they prayed at all. Yeah, Ellen. That's another difference between Esther and, and Moshe. Moshe spoke to God, and Esther takes advice from Mordechai, and they figure out together the best way to save the people. But they do it right. on their own. But God is hidden in the book of Esther. This is one of the ways our tradition talks about it. Whatever the divine plan is, whereas in the story of Passover a month later, it couldn't be more explicit. The burning bush, the voice says to Moses, here's the plan. <laughs> I have heard the moaning of my people. I know their pain. I will rescue them and I will be with you. What an incredible message of hope that is, right? Uh, it's explicit. It's revealed. In Esther, nothing's explicit. There's no evidence of a divine hand. Esther says, if I die, I die. But I'm going to try this. Right? It's, a, it's really amazing. There's no mention of God in the book of Esther. Um, and that's uh, uh, a fascinating feature of it. It's the anti-book of the Bible in the similar way that the book of Job is the anti-book, where Job says, divine justice, really, you know? And uh, then why is all this shit happening to me? Um, and Esther, so one of the things I love about the Torah that I've told you before is that in the whole anthology of books, you, just like in the cycle of the Jewish year, you will find every voice about what the hell we're doing here. But voices that are incredibly hopeful and optimistic, voices that are, that are, are kind of um, uh, apocalyptic, voices that are like, good luck, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. It's all there. The, to the Bible is not a doctrine about God. The best definition I've been able to come up with is it's an anthology of our people trying to figure out what it means to, to be a human being. You know, how, how do we get through this life and what's our purpose here? Because if you think you can develop a consistent uh, doctrine about God and you read the entire Hebrew Bible, you're just going to fail miserably. It's, it, it, you, it won't work. It won't work. Because in Ecclesiastes, God is, uh, there's nothing new under the sun, so eat, drink, and be merry. In Esther, it's like, if I die, I die. I'm going into the king. In uh, the Song of Songs, it's God as passionate love. And in Deuteronomy, it's God as like the, the protector, but also the punisher. They, they don't, and in Job, it's the voice from the whirlwind. That's the final answer from Job. The final answer in Job, after Job has this argument for all these chapters about where's justice, the voice from the whirlwind says, what do you know about me? I made the universe. How can, you, don't, you don't know anything. And that's the answer. Right? Um, I like that answer the best, actually. Uh, the last, last paragraph here is interesting. The last line, yeah. we have taught that Purim, unlike the other holidays, will continue to exist even in Messianic times. That's right. So the rabbis say in the Talmud, 
Right. When all the other, hol- when the Messiah comes and everything is repaired, everything is, the world is fulfilled, right. all the holidays will cease except Purim. This is his great line in the Talmud. Like, what does that mean? I love thinking about that line. Well, maybe it means that at that point, all categories disappear. Maybe every day's Purim. I don't know. It's, it's the most marvelous thing. Kind of a thing about after, you know, when Jesus comes back, all will be terrific and well and all of that stuff, maybe it's something like that. Well, it's a, it's a cryptic comment. Yeah. It says, at, when the Messiah comes, the only holiday that we'll all still celebrate is going to be Purim. But it's also a reminder. I mean, like, this whole thing, I just want to say something about Timna. Women, underneath, if you look, are given these tasks which no human being, and no man probably, could actually fulfill. She gives birth to this Amalek from her pain. That, that's such a redeeming thing to do because if you don't have duality, how can you mm-hmm. know oneness? And she's willing at some, you know, kind of the role she's playing level mm-hmm. to say, okay, I'm going to take that one on. And women in the Bible seem to be doing Eve. I mean, from time immemorial. And we don't really talk about that. But because you brought it up and because there she is and your daughter is named from her. Yeah. What? What did I do? <laughs> well, no, you brought honor. You brought her in. You brought mm-hmm. honor mm-hmm. because it's not just about, oh, la, la, everything's cool. Right. It's really, you can't do one without the other. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, so on some level, Amalek has to be in has our world. Um, exactly. And it's now we're really in the realm not uh, we're really in the realm of myth. Uh, think of these as, as as Greek, you know, archetypes of the rejected Timna giving birth to this that will then torment Jacob forever until maybe that's why Purim. Maybe that's why maybe that's why the rabbi said Purim uh, and I'm talking on that mythic level. Yeah. Um, uh, Timna's role is crucial. And on the mythic level, Purim, and the reason we celebrate it, is when Amalek is truly, finally defeated. And at that point, we're all one. You can't tell the difference between blessing and curse. And so, so the drama, the mythic drama, this is what I'm learning today, as I talk with you, the mythic drama that begins for the rabbis with the story of Timna's rejection and her therefore bringing Amalek into the world is resolved finally in some cosmic way with the, with the, with, uh, the, the story of um, uh, Purim. And the Jews then had light, layudim hayas, layudim haya, ora v'simcha v'sason v'kar, and the Jews had light and joy and rejoicing and uh, precious, mm. preciousness. Uh. So Haman was supposedly hung at the 50th cubit. Yeah. Which is beyond yeah. 
the 49th, of course. Yeah. And which, which indicates what? Indicates beyond the yeah. categories of duality. Yeah. So, so the rabbis are saying that Purim will still be celebrated because it is the holiday that elevates us beyond the categories of good and evil. Including Haman, especially Haman. Including Haman. Including Haman. And and to get there, we have to be drunk. Not necessarily. Spiritually. To reach the 50th. To reach the 50th, we have to be drunk. Or what other ways can we move beyond our, our, our necessary and and a regular consciousness to that. That's the fast way. That's right, that's the fast way. The, the, the Jewish way is that on every seventh day, on every seventh day, we're supposed to stop and what our tradition calls get a taste of the world to come. And they say Shabbat is called Me'en Olam Haba, a taste of the world to come. So somehow, maybe you don't have to get drunk, maybe there's another way to retool your consciousness from time to time, to step back far enough from the canvas of our lives. Because for me it's about getting, it's about imagining, you know that song um, that was such a big hit, uh, From a Distance, The World is Blue and Green, and the Snow-Capped Mountains White. Uh, from a distance, you see it all, that blue marble in the sky. So that when you re-enter, you're carrying some of that with you. How do you get there? How do you get there? Practice. The same way you get to Carnegie Hall. The same way you get to Carnegie Hall. It's, it's a practice of perspective. It's a meditation practice. It's a practice. I think it's grace. My simple Uh huh. Maybe it's just grace. Maybe it's just something that you get blessed with. Like you took a walk one day, or you had a dream, or and boom, you were snapped out of it, and you were out there, and then you descend back into your body. Maybe it's just grace. But all I know is we all want to get back to the garden. There's something in us that longs. Not all of us. Well, I'd say, I'd say in all of us, but some of us are more longing than others to get out of the boxing ring that is, say, our current... Uh, we're all in it right now. We're all like, you know, watch the news lines. Oh, and get out of that and hover over it a little bit and regain our perspective. We're all, gonna, we were all born. We're all going to die. The world's going to keep spinning. Whatever it needs, so that you, you know what I mean. It sounds like you're describing an LSD experience. Well, LSD, as studied as mm-hmm. not just in it's not just anecdotally, but as studied in the lab, does something to the brain that that lights up a center of our our brain where we see connections between things. That fame, that well-known book called My Stroke of Insight. Mm-hmm. by Jill Bolte Taylor. I really recommend it, either to listen to or she's a, neuro, she's a neurologist who 15 years ago had a stroke. But because she was a neurologist, the part of her brain that was still functioning was watching what happened and then wanting to write about it afterwards after 
seven years later when she had recovered her full language capacity. And what happened to her, as she describes it, is that the stroke was in her left hemisphere, which is this hemisphere that controls language, um, um, uh, cause and effect, uh, all that, all the things that make us able to navigate the world in that way. But her right brain was unaffected. The right brain seems to work in concert with the left brain and sees the whole, sees systems and the interconnectedness of everything, so that we are, so that our brains, when they're working right, are not just thinking about cause and effect, but also about how that cause and effect is, is connected to everything. It's a totally fascinating book. And, but her left brain shut down. And what she experienced was only connection of everything. Because her judging facility was gone. Now, in order to get back into the land of the living, she had to resuscitate this part of her brain. But it left her completely changed because she could not forget what this experience was like. So whether it's an LSD trip, or brain chemistry, or religious um, uh, ecstasy, or, 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 it's part of the palette of human experience. Um, and, uh, um, available, to be available. It's, it's, and it's there in us already. It's there in us already. Well, I think everybody reaches there at some point, the problem is we don't stay there very long. No. Nope. In meditation, I reach, get there every once in a while, and it disappears. And, and it disappears. The more you try, the harder you try to get there, the, the more difficult it is to do it. On the other hand, if you have the experience, however you've gotten it, it's in you. I never, I, there's a, let me put it this way. I get less upset because there's a part of me that is resting in that big picture. So I get less upset than I used to. That's a good thing. Because to be living your life on the emotional roller coaster and the adrenaline of winning and losing, many people in this world play their whole lives that way. But it's content, but it means you're on a roller coaster. And there's a field out beyond where we sometimes get to rest and, and meet each other. And, and meet each other. That, that's the practical application of it. You wanted to say something? Yeah, I do. Julie, the author of the person who wrote From a Distance is a woman named Julie Gold. Julie Gold, I met her. It's who a nice story. Grandparents. Jewish grandparents, paternal, Jewish paternal grandparents of immigrants from Romania. So when I, when I did a show with Kim and Reggie at the Christopher Street Church, uh, Julie Gold was there. Mm -hmm. It was a 9-11, post 9-11 gathering. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, maybe it was, it was some anniversary of 9-11. And we were downtown and we got to be part of this beautiful concert. So she performed this and, there's a performance at some synagogue. And she performed this song there and talked about its origins. Yeah. So it's always stayed with me. Oh. Yeah. Jewish. <laughs> oh, very Jewish. She was very Jewish, yeah. Yes, Anne. Would you describe the following experience as 
an experience that you're talking about. Of getting to the 50th rung, yeah. I was upstairs alone in the big attic that my husband built, and I was playing the piano. I was having a lot of trouble. It was a simple little rondo, but I was having a lot of trouble. As I was playing, my mind went into a different place. I wasn't in the room, but I was in the room. I stopped playing and became aware that way up in the corner, there was an energy. The energy was slowly floating down to where I was. And as it came down, the only thing that was in my world, that was in my head, was that I knew that this was Mozart. Oh, no. wow. She knew that it was, she knew that the energy was Mozart. Yeah, yeah I would as well. He was standing behind me. Now, we all know that Mozart was a little man. Mozart was standing behind me, and when I got up the courage, I turned her slowly around, and there was standing a very tall man who looked exactly like the pictures of Mozart that we know. He was in a scarlet, beautiful scarlet velvet outfit with the tights. And he had his head turned away from me, and he had his arm out, and he had a, a cane or a stick or something that he was holding on to. And he did not move, and he did not speak. And I said, Mozart, is that you? <laughs> he did not move. And I then said, either in my head or out loud, please don't go. Please don't go away. And I stayed there for I have no idea how long. I don't know. And then he faded, mm. and he disappeared. And after a while, I wasn't exactly looking at the room, but I was just, it was there. And I turned around, and I went back to the piano, and I picked up the piece that I was playing, and I noticed for the first time that in little prints at the bottom of the piece, it said, this was written by Mozart when he was five years old. Oh. I was having a big difficulty with it when he was five years old when he wrote this. Wow. What an incredible story. Wow. And, and the question I want to ask you, Anne, is so when you recall that story, what does it, how does it affect you? That's what, one of the things I'm interested in. Because as you recall that story, and you're there again, what, what does it affect in terms of your, your perspective on things? Okay. Um, my first reaction to it, which has lasted for 25, 30 years, is gratitude. Gratitude. Mm -hmm. 
I was, I felt honored. Gratitude, honor. Yes. And um, that uh, I think it may have changed the way I think about mystery. I don't know. Mystery. I mm -hmm. don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm telling you that I was in a different space. I was not sitting at the piano. I was not in the room. I was not. I, it was a different space. Uh, Grace. Thank you. Woo. You have to run? Yes, I just got a shiver. So, something's going on. Well, let me share a 30-second thought with you before you go. And then we can all stop because it's 2 o'clock. Uh, thank you, Anne. So then, not only do the rabbis say that when the Messiah comes, every day will be Purim. And they're saying something along these lines. Beyond, but they say that Yom Kippur is like Purim because K means like in Hebrew. Mm. Yom Kippur is like Purim, mm. but from a very different place. Mm -hmm. Do you think I was in the 50th place? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Whenever you. Yes, you ascended to the 50th rung of the tree of life. But, Anne, and let me just finish this thought because. On Yom Kippur, when it's working, we're all together mm. in a way where categories disappear. Yeah. 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 Wow. Right? Yeah. But we didn't get there through getting drunk. Mm. We got there through fasting and praying and atoning to get to the place of oneness, at oneness, day of atonement, day of at oneness. So there are so it's fascinating, isn't it? How many possible pathways there are, and somehow that the rabbis intuited that Purim, on a spiritual level, and Yom Kippur, are headed in the same direction from through very different modalities. I guess is what I wanted to say. So laughter is spiritual. So laughter is spiritual. Laughter gets you high, right? And spiritual is... <laughs> okay, let's stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.